You're listening to Bill Handel, on demand from KFI AM 640. The rest of your natural life, for the murder of Paul Murdoch, This. Whom you probably love so much. This is the sentencing of Alex Murdoch for the murder I of his wife and son. you to prison for murdering him for the rest of your natural life. Those sentences will run consecutive under the statute involving possession of a weapon during a violent crime. There is no sentence where life a life sentence is imposed on other indictments. That is the sentence of the court, and you are remanded to the State Department of Corrections. The judge in Walterboro, South Carolina, sentencing Alex Murdoch to two consecutive life sentences for the murder of his wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul, at their home uh, outside the dog kennels, actually. Handel, um, when this judge was handing this down, one thing that I thought was interesting is the bailiff who was standing directly behind Alex Murdaugh had not really flinched the whole time. And, you know, he was in the camera view. So I've been watching him now for the last, what, 40 minutes or something this morning. When those two sentences were handed down, that deputy shook his head like, heck, yeah. He looked, and Alex Murdaugh really did not flinch. He knew what was coming his way. Oh, yeah, very stoic. I mean, that's a given. Now, uh, the consecutive sentences uh, I thought were kind of interesting. The judge is holding down, I mean, the the most serious. I didn't hear uh, without the possibility of parole, not that it matters. Uh, uh, He didn't have to uh, say that. Two life sentences and one after uh, another. Usually it's concurrent where uh, it's all mashed together. So, uh, effectively, he is uh, going to die in prison, yeah. and uh, then uh, I, I guess they're going to resurrect him, and he'll go until he dies again. That's what Wayne and I was asking Wayne. What is that exactly? And Wayne, you can jump in here, and that's that's exactly what Wayne told me. This is uh, this is a thing where there are different purposes of sentencing: punishment, protection of the community. One of them is general deterrence that you you send a message to the community. So when you see two consecutive life sentences, that's what that's about. That's not about any practical difference between one or two or two concurrently. That's about the sending a message to the community part of sentencing. All right, so we've got that. Now let's move over to San Bernardino and what's going on, uh, because that's a huge story locally. Uh, The snows have stopped, at least temporarily. I think we're expecting another storm coming in. But the issue is the people that are trapped, the amount of snow that's up there, uh, whether the authorities have, in fact, done enough. Uh, The National Guard is in there, uh, not only the local authorities, but they're bringing in help from all over the state. One of the people that uh, is helping, and I mean right in the middle of it, is a firefighter by the name of Pat. Uh, Pat, you're involved in the rescue. You've been up there. You live up there. And you're up to your eyeballs in this, and literally up to your eyeballs or higher. What is going on and what have you been doing? And thanks for joining us, by the way. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and just to clarify, I'm not directly as a firefighter involved in any of the, re- the formal rescue operations, just informally as a resident. I work off the mountain. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting week and a half. Um, and there's been a lot of stories of people being trapped, of damage to property, fires, 
you know, I'm sure you've heard of the, the collapse of the grocery store, which is very important to our community. Um, it's been a really devastating um, experience for our entire mountain. This is unprecedented. I've lived there a long time. A lot of the people I know have lived there longer than me. have never seen anything like this. And it's really crippled the mountain. It's crippled our infrastructure. Um, you know, I know we, when I was on uh, the other day, I was talking to John and Ken about how, you know, we're just so disappointed in the, the response from the county of San Bernardino from the beginning of this. And I know there was a declaration that went out from the county for state of emergency. And then now the state declared an emergency locally, which is helpful. But, you know, on the ground, you know, as a, as a community, we haven't really seen much of that uh, fruition yet. I know the National Guard is supposed to take over last night. Again, we haven't, you know, time will tell, you know, how long that'll take and kind of what efforts they're going to put in. Um, on a positive note, I did drive off the mountain today. I had to come to work off the hill today. So I did see some progress on Highway 18, which is the main artery to get off of the mountain. But, you know, still at the local level and the local little streets and communities, there are so many people that have not had a plow come through since last week. So let me ask this. Uh, the uh, There was a meeting uh, that was held and uh, the county chief executive, uh, Leonard Hernandez, uh, was uh, being attacked. I mean, he uh, literally was not a happy camper. And the complaints among the residents is uh, uh, twofold. One, uh, obviously not enough help, no, not, en- not enough snow plowing going on, uh, and non-preparation. And how do you prepare for something of this magnitude? There are places that have never even seen snow I mean, are people really upset about lack of preparation? I think so. You know, we um, you know we live in a place where it snows. We're not new to the idea that we get snow and we need snow removal, right? But the forecasts very early on were calling for unprecedented amounts of snow that you know are unusual for our mountain area. When you start seeing blizzard warnings and these things that were coming multiple days before the snow hit, in my mind, as a you know an administrator of the county, someone who's responsible for taking care of the safety of the residents you would move additional resources to that location. Now, granted, this is a widespread storm, and you're, you're right. It did snow down low into normal in areas that it does not normally snow. So the areas they had to be responsible for were, were much wider. So I think that, you know, it caught, it caught some people off guard, and maybe there aren't enough resources to get there that quick. Um, and I'm realistic about that as well. Um, I think the declaration was a little bit too late. Uh, I think it was probably three days too late. And again, okay. at the... At the ground level, they're really, even though they've made the declaration, there's still people trapped in their homes since last Thursday. So uh, it hasn't really changed anything from my point of view. I was up there all day yesterday, walking through my neighborhood, helping all my neighbors. I have many elderly in my neighborhood. My wife and my, my kids and I are going door to door, digging people's gas meters out, trying to get them to see if they need food and need help with anything. I know there's those gra- grassroots efforts that are happening. We're a very tight-knit community. We want to take care of each other. But the county administration, the, the stakeholders, I feel like they're not helping us. Right. We're, we're down to one grocery store in Lake Arrowhead, the Stater Brothers. Crestline's out of service. There's a smaller Jensen's Mart, Mini Mart that's completely wiped out. They're closed. They have nothing. They can't get food deliveries. And um, Goodwin's Market, you know, this, this structural collapse. And we're, we're in a tough spot right now. Uh, Pat, thank you. I'm I'm sure we're going to be talking to you uh, throughout the next day or two. Uh, Thanks for taking the time. Uh, Greatly appreciated. Now, uh, back we go to what's going on in San Bernardino. We just talked to a firefighter, Pat, who was talking about rescuing people and how difficult it is, uh, how there's one store left. uh, And uh, the major, major roads are being snow plowed, but people are still trapped uh, if they're on a secondary road. Blake Trolley is there uh, covering this story, and there's going to be a press conference later on. Uh, Blake, what what are you seeing now? 
Well, Governor Newsom declared a state of emergency, and yesterday we really saw those additional resources be brought to the region. But is it enough, Bill? I think that's the real question we're trying to figure out this morning. Um, I think that what everybody wants to know is how will these extra resources cut down on time uh, for people who are stuck in their homes to be reached, to be freed from their homes? We've he- we heard earlier this week that people had been stuck in their homes since last week. And when they gave us that initial uh, report, they said it could be another seven to 10 days before they come out. So for where we're sitting right now, that would still be several days from now that people are stuck inside their homes. As for the resources that were brought in yesterday uh, from that emergency declaration, uh, 15 additional engine crews from Cal Fire, uh, four additional snowcats have been brought to the region, one heavy dozer, urban search and rescue team. That's a team of 29 people uh, saw crews cutting up fallen trees. I did see those crews arrive yesterday morning. 20 loaders were set to come in last night with 40 people to work those loaders because they want to be able to use those, uh, you know, 24-7. Uh, we were told that additional snowplows were brought to the region knowing that this blizzard was coming in. But the problem was, Bill, this snow came down so heavy uh, that essentially the snow plows were useless. So they needed loaders to scoop this snow up and get rid of it. So they brought 20 more in with 40 people for a 24-hour uh, or 24-7 operation. 10 additional hand crews with snow shovels from Cal Fire have been brought in. And those crews are mainly helping people, especially you know elderly people, people who can't dig themselves out of their homes. We've heard of many stories about people like that who are trapped inside their homes. Uh, So those hand crews are coming in to help alleviate, you know, just the property around their homes, which is, you know, because these homes are just buried uh, in snow. Now, I heard you talking about this uh, in your last segment. I want to go to this. This is County CEO Leonard Hernandez. And last night, officials were challenged on the response about all of this. I'm sure when we were briefed here in about a a couple hours from now, I guess it's few more than a couple, but this can be about 10 a.m. Uh, I, I'm guessing officials are going to be pressed really hard on this because, Bill, from all the locals I've spoken with, they are not happy about the way officials have responded to this. So last night, county officials were asked, you know, what are you going to do to make sure that you respond better next time there's a blizzard, uh, given that, you know, there may be a next time that we have snow like this? We have already had preliminary conversations that, a blizzard warning is going to uh, result in a much different response. We've never had one before. We, we have a, a pretty set playbook of the different types of um, disasters in the county, unfortunately, since we're so large. We have the, the, the wildland fires. We have earthquakes. We have floods. We have uh, um, um, acts of terror. Well, now we, we get to add blizzard into our playbook. And so hindsight is always twenty twenty even though I believe the team did an amazing job of mobilizing before. If the National Weather Service ever issues a blizzard warning again, we will um, take a different approach immediately. What does that different approach look like? It, it looks like us preemptively calling in all our, all our exterior provider and other resources to say, how do we start to mobilize? The other thing we're looking at is in the shortage of chains, that's the big deal for the loaders, um, one of the things we're going to recommend is that the county um, look at in the public works arena having a lot more chains on hand so that our providers that have other equipment, the loaders, have we have those available and we're not having to order them from back east because so I want- chains on those big wheels aren't something that California sees a lot of.
I want to hone in on what he just said there yesterday, Bill. One of the big parts of that announcement from the emergency declaration is that they were going to be hiring private companies to accelerate snow removal. But a problem that they ran in uh, ran into is that a lot of these contractors around here with loaders don't have snow chains. So they essentially have a bunch of companies they can't use because their equipment can't run up there. Yeah, you said something that I thought was pretty striking. And uh, that is uh, even the equipment that was up there couldn't be used because the snow was coming down so heavily uh, that they were stuck. And the question is, I have not heard from any resident in San Bernardino or any frankly, other than the local officials saying, hey, we couldn't even function. Do you guys understand uh, that we could have had a dozen more loaders? We could have had more and we were stuck. Why isn't that being talked about? Or maybe that just isn't true, uh, that if they had additional uh, equipment, it would have gone much faster. They would have been able to clear up uh, these roads. Yeah, it all comes down to those additional loaders because, again, the snow plows are useless once the snow gets thick enough is how they've explained it. So they need to get those loaders uh, into the region, and that's, I I believe, the big criticism here. Why weren't those already up here? And as uh, your previous caller mentioned... I mean, yeah, they had this blizzard warning in effect for a few days. And, 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 you know, there were already calls for, you know, state resources to be brought in before it really became the issue that it became. So what is it before you go on? What is a loader? Is that a dump truck? No, it's just like one of those tractors with like a big bucket. So they're able to, uh, I had to Google that too. I kept hearing the word loader, so I Googled it. It's basically a tractor with uh, that big, uh, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, I guess that. It's like a big shovel. Uh, yeah, the really. shovel in front of it that we see all the time. We see in construction sites. So that's it, basically, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, and, and people are upset that those resources weren't brought in. Somebody said, you know, if we had those, we would have been able to keep up with the snow a lot better. Now we're so far behind with cleanup. And one of the more the other big issues that happened up there, Bill, I was talking to my friend. She lives in Crestline. She said between Wednesday and yesterday at 2 a.m., she only had cell service and Wi-Fi, so the combination of both, for about four hours in all of those days so a lot of people also were left not knowing what the heck right. was going on up there how about now is there cell service available is anybody uh, is everybody yeah. able to talk yeah she said yesterday at about i think 2 a.m 1 a.m her cell service came back on and has been working ever since and that's when i was able to get a much better idea of what's going on but again there are just so many issues that continue you know the jensen's market in blue jay they actually put out a uh a, a a request for people to come by and help shovel snow off their roof. Well, that that roof has collapsed since, and that that building has now been red tagged. So now in Crestline, the the we'll go to both grocery stores here in Crestline. They are they're down to no grocery store because the only grocery store in the area, uh, its roof collapsed a few days ago, and now over in Blue Jay, another uh, roof has collapsed in the area. So food supply issues have also become uh, a, a real concern, and I know the sheriff's department and other officials have been shipping ready to eat meals up into the mountains. How about power? Uh, is power available to everybody? Well, power, you know, power's been hit or miss. You know, some people are losing power. I've talked to other people that say they have power. I think that one of the other challenges has been getting fuel up into the mountains. And I have heard reports of people saying that their generators are running out of gas. And and, and again, 
the the power outages. Yeah, I mean, even the person uh, somebody I spoke to yesterday said her power was out for uh, quite some time, uh, and her house got down to I don't know forty degrees. And I know many people have lost power. And another issue, Bill, too, uh, as we're talking about just home issues from all of this, is gas meter explosions because these gas meters, I guess, are being weighed down with snow. And so officials actually yesterday put out a uh, a tweet about this, telling people to remove the snow around their gas meters. I think there were three home explosions yesterday. Yeah, it is uh, absolutely extraordinary what's going on. Now, uh, one of uh, the uh, news items that we're uh, hearing is the major roads uh, appear to be being cleared off right now. It seems to be pretty successful. Pat, the firefighter, said he was able to come down off the mountain, and that would be the first time, uh, well, since uh, probably a couple days ago. Uh, Are there secondary roads being cleared uh, where these people are? Have they approached those yet? Have they, they, they reached that point of it yet? Yeah, I'm going to be working to get an update on that. I know earlier this week they had said the first thing they were going to do is try to create, you know, the pathways through those main roads, and then they would start working on those secondary roads. So at about 10 a.m. when we're briefed on this, we'll be able to get an update on that. Um, Because I believe we were told uh, about two days ago it would take about two to three days to clear those primary roads. So I would imagine they're either finishing up or about to finish up and start moving into those secondary roads. But again, at 10 a.m., we'll be getting an update on all of that. And the big question here is, have we, you know, with all these resources, are we cutting down on the time to get to those people stranded inside their homes? They're the ones most concerned right now. And I'm assuming uh, the next storm coming in, they're already anticipating uh, what's going to happen if they're moving in, in in order just to protect the entire uh, community from that. Yes, I talked to the National Weather Service. They say there's a slight change of snow Saturday night, but they say that will be fairly light, maybe up to an inch on and off showers. Okay, so no one, big deal. But one of the big issues is the just the uh, the the temperature. It's going to 20 degrees is the low throughout the weekend, and they say that is going to continue to keep roads really icy, and that's another big challenge that has, has come up from all of this weather. Blake, thanks. Uh, it's terrific work, and we'll be talking to you for uh, certainly the rest of the day. Now, a few minutes ago. Uh, the sentencing of um, Alex uh, Murdaugh just came down. He was given two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. In other words, he is uh, he's going to die in prison, and then he's going to die again in prison. And I'm bringing Wayne here uh, in because Wayne, of course, having 28 years in the criminal uh, justice system, uh, in the uh, federal system, uh, knows an awful lot about this. Uh, Wayne, uh, you had said that the consecutive sentences of life in prison sends a very powerful message. Have you seen this before? We are talking about something on this magnitude. Yes. Do you do you want to talk specifically about uh, consecutive life sentences, or more generally about sentences that are imposed that don't really have any practical effect, except? To send a message to society. Uh, yeah, I mean, the uh, obviously the consecutive uh, life sentences, if you're talking without the possibility of parole, that's sort of a given uh, that you're going to die in prison because that's the very definition of uh, that sentence. So let's talk about the double sentence, uh, con- consecutively one after another, uh, which is fairly rare in and of itself, isn't it, consecutive sentences? Uh, I would say so. There are some crimes that require consecutive sentences. Uh, And then there are other crimes where you have your choice as a judge. And usually, usually judges are thinking in terms of, look, what's the total time here? 
And if you have one count that's life and you have other counts that are lower, most judges are going to say, well, life is life. So there's no point trying to stack other things on top of a life sentence. And in fact, you heard the judge talk about the fact that he Murdoch's not just convicted of the murders, he's convicted of using a firearm in a crime. And the judge specifically said that under the law in South Carolina, if you're getting a life sentence and you also have a conviction on one of those gun charges, no sentence is even pronounced on those gun charges. That's the legislature recognizing the practical futility of stacking sentences on top of a life sentence. But here you had two life sentence counts, so you have to pronounce a sentence. What's the difference between saying they'll run consecutively or concurrently? Public impression. That is the only practical difference. But but there's something in the law called general deterrence. You have specific deterrence. Bill, if you, uh, I don't know, steal my wallet, then we want to make sure you don't steal wallets again. But we also want to try to help that other people will think twice before stealing wallets. So sometimes a judge will do something with your sentence that's not a message to you. It's a message to the community at large. And that's what this is here. Yeah. Uh, just a quick note about stealing your wallet. Uh, since I know you work here, it's never worth <laughs> it to steal your wallet uh, as uh, as a given. Uh, now, uh, one of the riskiest things, and you've uh, obviously thousands of trials that you have been involved with and know about this over the years. One of the riskiest things that uh, Murdoch's defense team did was put him on the stand. And that is very, very rare. Let's talk about that. Is that the only choice they had? And obviously it backfired on him. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Or was um, this is just a, a bad legal move? This is what I'm assuming. And, may, and to make it clear, it's an assumption. It is, it is such a bad legal move that I assume he insisted and you've represented people as you know if if they want to do something that's allowed no matter how bad an idea you as the attorney think it is if they insist you have to do it for them right so i this is an assumption that i'm making somebody may have specific information to contradict that but i can't imagine any attorney as their own strategy decision putting this guy on the stand and it was a disaster for him yeah, right. He, uh, well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it, 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 I'm looking at this as his hubris that uh, he could convince the jury with his crying and uh, with his demeanor uh, that he didn't do it, uh, even in light of the circumstantial evidence. And then, because you're wide open when you uh, when you're on the stand, I mean, it is a free for all. The attorney, the prosecutor, can say Virch can ask anything uh, to either uh, directly examine him or rebut whatever he says. Uh, and uh, clearly it was lying. It was that one lie that everybody's talking about. I wasn't there at that moment, and he lied to the cops and admitted it. But And it was would there have been a chance that he would have gotten off had he not said that, had it not been established that he was there? Oh, uh, yes. That's the, that's the, uh, the key. That's the piece of evidence that it, that made him that made the jury find him guilty is that he claimed repeatedly that he was not there 
And here is this, uh, it was a Snapchat video taken by his son. Very, the prosecutors say it was within five minutes of that video being taken that uh, he killed his son. And the cameras pointed down kind of at the ground. You could see a dog, a dog's tail is wagging and you can hear Murdaugh. Clearly, he's clearly there. Everybody who's heard it that knows him knows that that's his voice. Had he either, well, he can't say he was there five minutes before they were murdered because that's not a very good alibi. So he either would have had to confess or try to tell a lie to get out from under it. And he chose that route. And if it wasn't for that video, Bill, all the other circumstantial evidence might not have been enough. And I actually, if you want to take a break, I don't know if you want yeah. to keep talking about this no, or I, not. We do I have, have some insight into um, the initial juror vote that they took, and it's not what I thought it was. Yeah, just a quick one before we come back. Uh, one of the more interesting uh, aspects of this trial, three hours the jury deliberated. That's it. And I'm assuming there was a dinner break in there. Uh, there may have been, because that three hours, they didn't, they didn't use all of that three hours. <laughs> Did he really have any choice? They had him. They had his voice, Wayne, on that video uh, at the uh, kennel where five minutes after the video was taken, uh, the uh, his son Paul and his wife Maggie were murdered. Is it almost, uh, it was a Hail Mary uh, that he had really no choice other than to maybe convince the jury uh, with his... I'm going to argue hubris, hubris, but, you know, with his uh, begging effectively for his life. Uh, I, I don't think so. I think it was a terrible idea. And I think it was his idea, not his attorney's idea. And here's why it was a terrible idea. Because he had already lied multiple times saying that he was not there. Now comes this evidence that he was there. What, what could you possibly accomplish by getting on the witness stand and having to admit that you lied and how do you how do you parlay that into a pitch to the jury that you didn't kill them when the when the only thing that can come out of you being on the stand is having to admit that you've already lied about where you were here is why now i'm going to be the devil's advocate yeah, here please. okay here is uh, number 1 admitting he lied and explaining why he lied. His, his family had just been murdered. He discovered the bodies uh, and then the police show up. Uh, he was just completely out of his mind. You can imagine what people are like having discovered the bodies of their families, his story, and the police show up and you're high on some opiates at the same time. And basically he flipped out. I mean, that is, is it plausible that happens? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's plausible if you believe that person and then his acting skills that he knows because he's convinced juries. He's been a, an attorney and a successful one for so many years. Put all that together. He goes, uh, yeah, maybe I have a shot at doing this. Your thoughts? Uh, there's one problem with that theory. And that is your your theory requires that the story is um, he showed up. They were dead, putting him into a, a fraught mental state. And then somehow his dead son took a video on his phone because the video was taken before the murder. So he, his explanation 
for lying about being there or not being there can't be I showed up and they were already dead and it made me crazy and I told you I wasn't there because he showed up and the and the video proves he was there before they were dead so he couldn't have it, it couldn't the lie couldn't have been because he was so distraught from discovering their dead bodies okay now he may not have understood what that video established and in fact he he probably he didn't know there was that video when he told the lie yeah I'm so, assuming so he your did point, not. why he would lie why he would lie originally maybe if he didn't realize that the video was there although that's not what he told them he told them that uh he was having problems with cocaine and and, and had paranoid thinking your explanation you would have been a better attorney for him I think because at least the explanation you put forth, you can kind of wrap your mind around it, but that's he unfortunately didn't say that, right? And it's uh, I and the judge came down pretty hard. And this is a, another thing. And I ask you uh, in terms of how often does a judge look at a defendant and say you're a liar, and I mean just straight out you're a liar. Uh, does that happen often? Yeah, actually, <laughs> it does happen uh, once in a, once in a while. Uh, maybe a little more than once in a while. I remember one time a fraud guy was being sentenced that I worked on his case, and the judge said, uh, "You know, you're." He said to the defendant, "You're a very pleasant man, and you're pro- probably enjoyable uh, to to be social with." But I know that the entire time that I would be social with you, I would be at great risk because <laughs> <laughs> you're such a liar. That's and true. in this case, it's even more that the, the lying aspect of it, I think, uh, got under the judge's skin even more because we're talking about an attorney, an officer of the court and part of kind of a, a legal dynasty with his family. And there, one thing judges don't like is when people who are supposed to represent the best that the justice system can be do things like this and besmirch it. It uh, interesting that and we're going to end it with this uh, is that uh, he kept on maintaining his incident, uh, his innocence. Oh yes. Uh, he when he was asked uh, whether he wants to make a statement, he says, "As I tell uh, you again, I respect the court, but I am innocent. Yep. I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my wife and um, uh, my wife Maggie, and would never, under any circumstances, hurt my son Paul." And it remember, it wasn't him. Uh, that was one of the defense arguments that this is not who he is. He couldn't have done it. Yes. He loved his wife. He loved his son. And the judge, to that point, saying, "And it might not have been you." Uh, it might have been the monster you became when taking large amounts of opiates. Uh, he referred to that uh, and uh, effectively said, yeah, okay, it wasn't you, uh, but people can be monsters. The prosecutor came in really hard, uh, mentioning that none of the victims of the crime, obviously not Paul or Maggie, but none of the family members, uh, friends, and any relatives, parents uh, would say anything on his behalf. I mean, they, at that point, were done. And if you notice the demeanor of the courtroom, uh, there was no surprise. Did anybody think that he would uh, have a not guilty verdict? Only him. He's the only one. I don't think his lawyers thought that there would be a not guilty verdict. And I don't think his lawyers thought there'd be anything less than life sentences. Yeah. 
Hey, can I just one one thing yes, quickly? Because we were we were trying just the initial jury vote, which I speculated must have been unanimous guilty, and that's why they didn't take very long. But I was wrong. It turns out the first jury vote was nine guilty, two not guilty, uh, one like undecided. Wow. Then why didn't they then go through? the evidence and pointed out, did they just browbeat the jurors? No, they, here, here's what, because one of the jurors gave an interview already. They they went over the evidence for 45 minutes to an <laughs> hour, he said, and then everybody agreed. I don't know. That's, this is not a jury you want to be a defendant in front of. Clearly. No, I, although, although it, you know, the, the evidence was overwhelming. Right. This guy's point was the evidence was actually overwhelming, and we all knew this that that Murdoch was a liar through and through. Okay, all right, uh, Wayne, thanks. Uh, great stuff. Steve Gregory is here as uh, he always is. Uh, Steve heard uh, well; it's uh, unsolved. Heard uh, every uh, Saturday from seven to nine. That is correct. That's right. That is absolutely correct. And at Steve Gregory six forty is uh, Steve's social address now. I did a story um, a few days ago, actually I did it yesterday, uh, about uh, the police, a protective league, uh, mm -hmm. police union of LAPD saying, here are 28 crimes that we are not, we do not want to answer. Right. We don't want to go there. We need somebody else to show up. The one that, of course, floored me was public urination because <laughs> I was in that car a few, about a week ago and I had to pee so badly and I could have just pulled over and just peed on the side of the road and I'd be fine. Well, you know, uh, somebody that listens to the show uh, had told me, had heard that and told me that what you should have done was just pulled over to a homeless camp. <laughs> and then you would have just blended right in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. So let's talk about those 28. It's, and some of them are, uh, that's just, well, no, it's not just fun because it's defecating on the street. Also, the police sure. don't want to show up. Most of them, if you really look at it, the bulk of them have to do with homeless and mental illness. And, you know, you've got some minor ones like uh, traffic infractions and things of that nature and traffic accidents where there's a non-fatal involved. If you look at the reason behind this, this is, I think this is what's the most interesting is why did the union all of a sudden come out and say, you know, this is what we'd like to have happen. Well, in, in people I've been talking to in, in many sources that are, you know, that have, uh, have knowledge of the situation have told me that um, there are reasons. I mean, there are very specific reasons why they want to do this, but if you look at it in the totality of why they want to do it like the way it is, is go back to every time, there's an altercation with an officer and someone involved in one of these 28 calls where there's been any kind of a use of force. Think about whether it's a minor use of force or what they call a categorical use of force. Uh, you know, the officers are immediately, you know, eviscerated because it's anytime an officer has some sort of a violent encounter with a homeless person, the officer usually is the one that gets sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, I want to say, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Eviscerate is what I looked at. But he said officers are typically the ones that get blamed for yep. whatever violence and they do. happens. And they do. I've talked to cops. And uh, it's one of them. This is a statement that I heard is either I shoot someone or I go to jail. Uh, either I get shot or I go to jail for shooting someone. Right. And so I, to your point, I just I'm thinking I'm processing this is when there is an excessive use of force. 
you're right. The cops are immediately blamed for, well, whenever there's force use. Any kind of use. Of force, use. Yeah. And one of the arguments is all it was was a traffic stop. All it was right, was exactly. speeding. All it was was some minor infraction. So uh, is that the reason that the well, police are bailing out of this? I can't say that's the reason. I'm or just a saying, reason? I'm just saying that officers are collectively tired of being blamed for all the ills in society. They're just tired of it. They're tired of every time they encounter someone who's high on drugs and that person produces something that could be construed as a weapon, uh, something that might look like uh, a gun, anything like that. And an officer, through their training, reacts the way they think it's appropriate, the way their training tells them to react. And most every time it's the correct reaction if you listen to the trainers in the departments and very few times that may, may have been the wrong choice. But the point is, is these officers collectively have kind of just had it with these minor calls because when you go out, no one ever talks about the responsibility of the individual on the other side of this. Um, when someone's pulled over and there's a, it's a legal stop, for instance, and if they're taken out of the vehicle, they're asked to step out of the vehicle. And instead of the person stepping out of the vehicle, they choose to argue. And then it escalates. And then they choose, and then they refuse to show documents, or they refuse this and that and the other. Then the whole dynamic changes. And officers are tired of that fight. They're tired of that sort of, we show up, we're asked to show up, and we get there, we end up having some sort of an interaction, and it doesn't go well. So I think that's a lot of what's happening here, too, uh, that officers are fine. Let's push that off to the side. Let some other people handle that. We can focus on the more critical life and death mm -hmm. calls, and we can uh, and we can also spend more time in the community for community yeah. policing. And we're talking about what well, this has been going on for a while, shoplifting. The police don't show up anymore. Uh, you've got, uh, a, you know, public urination, public even exposure and a few other, uh, right. and, a, and a few other ones. And, um, it's, um, it, it's, you know, when you think about how difficult it is, because even when someone pulls uh, a toy gun out, uh, the cops should have known. Yeah. The cops should have absolutely known, you know, you know, you're right. Then that's the kind of stuff that officers are, are met with every second of every day yeah. around the country. And I think, you're starting to see some of these officers say enough is enough. So if that's fine, take all these minor calls and put them off on someone else. Uh, real quick, this is a suggestion by the police union, the protective sure. league. Mm -hmm. Is it going to be uh, Chief Moore's call as to what, 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 how many of these are going to be accepted? It'll be a combination of uh, the chief, the police commission, and the city council because some of this is going to because the city council, remember, has these nonviolent response teams. And they're going to open this office of nonviolent response, and it's going to cost a million bucks. So you're going to have all those people involved. So all right. unsolved. Unsolved uh, tomorrow night from uh, 7 to 9 o'clock. That's right. What's so going on? tomorrow night, we welcome uh, Special Agent uh, Kyle Morey from the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, the LA office. He runs a team that has been tracking El Mencho, the head of the world's largest drug cartel. Uh, the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, or the CJNG as it's called. And he gives us an update on the arrests that have been made in the cartel because of the direct correlation between the cartels in Mexico, this cartel, and Los Angeles. He talks a lot about that. We also talk about the connection to my show and El Mencho, or at least El Mencho's hometown in Zapopan, Mexico, a suburb of Guadalajara. Yeah. You know, every time you mention El Mencho, uh, I'm thinking of uh, going to a deli like Brent's and someone pointing out and saying, he's a real men show. <laughs> yeah, I never thought of that. Yeah. He's a very nice men show. Yeah. No, this is a bad men show. Okay. Yeah, this one's a bad men show. And 
we get an update about the arrests of his family because, you know, when you talk about, you know, we do unsolved crimes. Well, this is an unsolved or an unresolved crime, if you will. Uh, and he talks about how they have to target this individual um, knowing that he's the bad guy. This, he said this is the difference between like detectives here uh, that, that do homicides and other crimes. And they don't really know her, who the perpetrator might be or who the person is. Whereas their agency, they know the bad guys. They know who they're after. But the, the their challenge is the journey to get to that person. And so they always know who they're after. You know, I've always wondered, uh, I, I, frankly, why they bother. And I know you want to put bad guys away. But let's say you have a cartel, uh, head of a cartel. And uh, the chase goes on, sometimes for years, and resources are extraordinary, which they should be. Uh, and uh, you've got, for example, El Chapo, who went to work, w- went to war with a country mm-hmm. and was winning it. Right. I mean, go to war against Colombia and win the war to where they caved. And then what happens is, so down he goes, he's in the United States, prison for 20 years. And then the fight starts where uh, you've got people that are now fighting each other to become head of the cartel and even more violence uh, happens. I mean, I, the mentality of law enforcement officers saying, the better we do, the more dangerous it's going to be. You know, that's interesting perspective. And I had asked uh, the agent about the relationship between the United States and Mexico. And I said, you know, and he dispels a lot of the myths about working with the Mexican government. He says, they're not all as corrupt as you see on television. They're not. In fact, the arrest of El Mencho's brother, and by the way, El Mencho is tenfold worse than El Chapo. That's my point. Yeah. And in, in what happens is it's basically broken down into the two most powerful cartels on the planet, the Sinaloa cartel and then the New Generation cartel. Those are the two biggies. There's a lot of little tiny ones going on, but these are the two big ones. And they are these are transnational organizations. But the New Generation cartel has a worldwide reach. Um, we also discover in the show tomorrow that El Mencho has family in Los Angeles. And that's probably a reason why our website started pinging uh, with hits from Zapopan, Mexico. Uh our website was getting hits from down there about El Mencho, about our, our focus on El Mencho. And because we had done a story previously about him. So there's an interesting connection. And, and the agent talks to me a little bit about that uh, as well. But um, the fight for the cartel to lead the cartel, a lot of times that hierarchy is already established. So everyone knows who's the second in command, the third in command. It's a very sophisticated run organization. They It's mapped out. It's a corporation. I mean, it yeah, really I know. Is Good, yeah, out. I know. It's just, it's astounding how sophisticated it is. Do you ever, uh, have you ever been told or hinted at saying, you know what, you don't want to cover that part of it? Sure. Uh, you have. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And when I first got wind, when we were looking at the analytics on our website about, you know, we were, where we were getting hits from, we were so curious about it. And these little pings from Mexico, Southern Mexico started to pop up. Like, what is this? And I immediately texted the agent. I said, hey, we're getting hits from El Mencho's hometown. What's that all about? And then he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I mean, (laughs) you're on the radar, right? (laughs) They all know who you are. (laughs) I'm like, what do you mean don't worry about it? And then when he explained to me why not to worry about it, then, you know, I'd say, okay, I feel a little better. But, uh, yeah, he, you know, he's very calm. I mean, this guy's been – the interesting thing is this – this team that that has been created to go after this specific cartel was created within the same time that the new generation cartel 
was was founded. And so they have been working parallel. I mean, they've been, you know, parallel. So this team and this cartel have been side by side all these years because the, the new generation cartel, I think, was created until 2011. Uh, as far as the cartels are concerned, are they more concerned with the United States or Mexico, uh, the Mexican authorities? The United States, clearly. Yeah, because, you know, they're, I mean, there's, it's not that there's zero corruption in Mexico. It's just that it's not as bad as it's been portrayed. But a lot, it's, as he, the agent explained, uh, the New Generation Cartel, they own like two of the major ports. I, I think he, I, I think he said, well, not Puerto Vallarta. I think he said Veracruz. Or, I can't remember. A couple of the port cities along the Pacific side are owned by the cartel. So and that and the great many and, and the shipping and all of that and, and but that shipping is important because that's where all the chemicals to make fentanyl are coming from China, and so it's coming into Mexico and that cartel owns those so that it's safe passage for those chemicals to come into Mexico and then eventually fentanyl makes its way in the United States. It's a very complicated, convoluted thing, and Agent Mori breaks it down for us. He does a really good job of that. All right, so next time we go to lunch, Steve, which we do on a regular basis, I want you to about 100 yards in front of me <laughs> or behind me. You take your choice. Tomorrow night. Well, I don't want you to be going out there. You're such an El Mencho. <laughs> such an El Mencho. Yeah, 7 to 9 o'clock uh, in the evening tomorrow night, uh, unsolved. Steve, have a good one. You too, pal. This is KFI AM640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. You've been listening to The Bill Handel Show. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. and anytime on demand on the iHeartRadio app.